Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. What we're going to look at today is the final week of the life of Jesus. Uh, it's in John chapter 12. Now here's the interesting thing. The first 11 chapters of John's gospel are devoted to the first 30 years of Jesus' life. The last half of the book, really, is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. So this is, this is what we're, we're working with. Uh, we've got the, 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 these first 30, actually 33 years, and then we've got this, this last half of the book dedicated to the, the last week of Jesus on earth. And this is not unusual for the gospel writers. The other three gospel writers do something very similar. Matthew dedicates about two-fifths of his chapters to that last week. Mark does three-fifths, and Luke devotes about one-third of all of his words uh, in the gospel to that last week of Jesus' life. I personally believe that the, the Spirit of God despot, the, the, the inspired these writers, um, and that the reason the Spirit inspired them to write in this manner is because that last week of Jesus' life is focusing our hearts and minds on his redemptive power. You know, what he came to do. Now, another way to look at it is, um, is this way. If you, if you total up all of the chapters of the four Gospels, you're going to find out that four of the chapters are dedicated to Jesus' life over those first 30 years. But then the, the, the last three years of his ministry, the other 85 chapters are devoted to that. And then of that, those last, there are 29 that are devoted to this very last week. Another thing that's very significant, I believe, is what we look at, the event we look at, is covered by all four gospel writers. Now you're saying, Joe, why is that so special? Because it doesn't happen very often. Very seldom is there one event that all four gospel writers write about. This happens to be one of those. And it's what we have come to know uh, in the Christian community as Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before the resurrection of our Lord. It's the Sunday before the crucifixion. It's that, that Sunday, the first day of the week that is known as the passion of Jesus. And again, it's recorded by all four gospel writers. So I want us to look, if you would, if you've got your Bibles and you want to turn there, we're going to read out of, I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version this morning. Mine entitles this the triumphal entry, this section of scripture. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that's the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That, that paragraph right there is a quote of an Old Testament prophet. We'll deal with that in a little bit. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard and done the signs that he had done. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
This is the word of the Lord, and I wish that the Pharisees' words were actually true, that the whole world went after Jesus. You know, that's, that's a prayer I think we could pray now. By this point in Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus had made many claims. He had done many incredible signs and wonders. Uh, but this is the only time in the three to three and a half years of Jesus' ministry where he would allow himself to be put forth publicly as the Messiah. Every other time crowds had tried to do this, Jesus said no. He stopped it from happening. But now on Palm Sunday, he does. He allows it to happen. Actually, he participates in the happening. In, in some ways, he actually makes it happen. It's interesting to me that we know that Jesus was carried by donkey into the city of his birth. And now on Palm Sunday, we see Jesus being carried by donkey into the city of his death. And what that did for me was it caused me to say, what's so special about donkeys? So here are some interesting, fun donkey facts. I know you all got up this morning saying, gosh, I hope Joe tells us something that I didn't know about a donkey. Here you go. Anybody know the average age span of a donkey? Does anybody have a pet donkey? We actually had somebody in our first service that kind of has, he, he works at a stable, but he considers himself as his pet. Um, the, the average lifespan, somewhere in that 25 to 40 year range, if you take really good care of your donkey, I have it in good authority, they can live up to 60 years. So they have a pretty significant lifespan. Do you know what one of your, one of the pastimes of your first president of the United States was? He was one of the first donkey breeders in our nation. George Washington. I didn't know that. Okay. You know what a donkey's favorite pastime is? Rolling in dirt. That's why if you ever see anybody walk up and pat a donkey, dust always flies off of a donkey. Because they just love to roll in dirt. They, 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 they just do that. You know, I knew that donkeys transported people. You know, I knew that. That was one of the things they did. They're beast of burdens. Um, donkeys also have pretty large ears. There are two reasons why. You know why? One is their ears act as a radiator. It helps cool their bodies. The other is so that they can hear it from great distances. And that, that fact is important because in some countries, I did not know this, but in some countries, donkeys are actually used as guard animals. They kind of watch, they'll watch over sheep. They'll use them as guard animals. How many of you have ever seen a sign that says, beware of donkey? <laughs> I've not seen one. Okay, um, but the, the, in, in some cultures, this is, this is actually true. Now, I know these, this is just stuff you wanted to know about donkeys, but we're afraid to ask, so there you have it. Um, now, this, this, this event, this incredible holy event, this defining moment in the ministry of Jesus takes place on a donkey. It also takes place on a, an incredibly special day. An incredibly special day. In, in the Hebrew calendar, this date that this was taking place, what we know as Palm Sunday, was uh, Nisan the 10th. Now, there's a month in Hebrew uh, calendar called Nisan. It's not a car. Car has nothing to do with it. So if you drive a Nissan, it's not like a holy vehicle. Right? You know, I don't think the Pope drives a Nissan or nothing like that. The, um, but in, in this month, on the 10th day, which historians tell us this was that day, the 10th day of Nisan, that Jesus allowed himself to be put forth into the hearts of people as the Messiah. That is also the day 
uh, in the Passover celebration where people would take a lamb out from among a flock. They would find the most perfect lamb that they had. They would take it out from among the flock. And they would literally, some of them, if they did not have a pen, they would bring them into their house. And that lamb would live with them until Nisan 14, four days later, which would be the day that lamb would be sacrificed as an offering for their sin, for atonement. And that, that journey is what Jesus is making on this day. He is allowing himself to be presented, taken into the hearts, the families of the nation of Israel as this promised one. Now they didn't realize that he would be the great sacrifice. But by doing this, Jesus is saying, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am all in for you people. I'm going to give it all to you. I believe that's part of what he was declaring on that very incredible day. Now again, I don't think this was insignificant. I think this was worked out by God. And I want us to think deeply into this story this morning because I believe with all my heart it can give us as followers of Jesus a great confidence in the gospel. It can give us a great confidence uh, for ourselves to believe it, to trust in it. It can give us a great confidence to go out and share it bolder. Okay, so that's what I'm hoping that we will see today. Three things that I want us to look at that I believe will take us, carry us into this holy week with a greater confidence in the gospel of Jesus. Three things that I see happening here. First of all is this. I see Jesus letting us know that he is better than religion. Because Jesus is better than religion. Now if you go back and look at verses 12 and 13, it starts out in verse 12 saying that the next day the large crowd. Now I want to talk about that crowd in a few minutes because it's an interesting crowd. We'll describe that in a minute. But it says the large crowd had come to the feast, the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So there are these people in town there for the feast who are now hearing Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Okay, and it says, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, one of the realities and truths about the Jewish nation is they prided themselves in being a very religious people. Very religious people. They, they, they would come to Jerusalem for all kinds of feasts. And so they would come to this feast of Passover as we're told here. If you go back and look at John 12 verse 1, it tells you that the Passover was happening. And so the Passover was a Jewish national holiday. It celebrated their deliverance from 400 years of bondage, captivity, slavery to the nation of Egypt. And uh, miraculously, through ten plagues, God releases them, sets them free out of that captivity, sends them out into the wilderness, and then finally into the promised land. Passover, that moment when God was setting them free, becomes the focal point of, the, of their national history. Their calendar even changed at that, at that moment, and everything in their lives revolves around this Passover feast. And it had just become this, this habit that they engaged in. The same thing every year. They went up to Jerusalem. The same route, you know. And quite frankly, by law, if you lived in a certain radius of Jerusalem, by law, you had to go. You were forced to go to this celebration. But for many, this had become a ritual. There were prescribed prayers that you would pray. That's just what you would do. There were certain sacraments and ceremonies that you had to engage in. 
And in so many ways, the nation of Israel and its religion had become lifeless and dried up. I shared with you something from uh, an author by the name of Max Lucado last week. I want to read something else to you that he wrote it's from a different book. Um, and what he did here was he, he, he imagined a shepherd watching over sheep just outside of Jerusalem on a hill watching the comings and goings of Passover. This is what he wrote. It said, The bright noonday sun cast a common shadow for the Judean countryside. It's the black silhouette of a shepherd standing near his fat-tailed flock. He stares at the clear sky searching for clouds, but there are none. He looks back at his sheep. They graze lazily on the rocky hillside. An occasional sycamore provides some shade. But he sits on the slope and places a blade of grass in his mouth, and he looks beyond his flock to the road below. For the first time in days, the traffic has thinned out. For over a week, a river of pilgrims have streamed through this valley, bustling down the road with animals and loaded carts. For days, he has watched them from his perch. Though he could not hear them, he knew they were speaking a dozen different dialects. And though he didn't talk to them, he knew where they were going and why they were going there. They were all going to Jerusalem. They were all headed to the temple to sacrifice lambs. The celebration strikes him as ironic. Streets jammed with people, marketplaces full of sounds of the bleeding of goats and selling of birds, endless observances. The people, he thinks, relish their festivities. They awaken early. They retire late. They find strange fulfillment in all the pageantry. Not him. What kind of God would be appeased by the death of an animal, he wonders. Now, the shepherd's doubts are never voiced anywhere except on the hillside. But on this day, they shout. It isn't the slaughter of the animals that disturbs him. It's the endlessness of it all. How many years he has seen the people come and go. How many caravans. How many sacrifices. How many bloody carcasses. Memories stalk him. Memories of uncontrolled anger. Uncontrolled desire. Uncontrolled anxiety. So many mistakes. So many stumbles. So much guilt. God seems so far away. Lamb after lamb, Passover after Passover, yet he confesses, I still feel the same. He turns his head and looks again at the sky. Will the blood of yet another lamb really matter? I believe that Lucado captures the spirit of the nation into which Jesus comes that day. I believe that Jesus walks in to a, a, a crowd of people who that, that is their reality. A crowd of people who are tired of endless rituals and prescribed prayers. A, a crowd of people who are desperate for something better. They want it more than religion. They longed for a different kind of reality. The kind of reality that the prophets had declared that they grew up hearing about. They wanted that. They longed for that. And that was why the crowds gathered around Jesus because into that lifelessness he breathed fresh life. He brought newness. Matthew records in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew a moment in time when the scribes and Pharisees come seeking Jesus. They did this so often. 
Um, and it was the craziest thing. They would leave the comforts of the capital city of Jerusalem and they would track Jesus down out in the wilderness because he was always teaching up around the, the Sea of Galilee. And they would, they would go for miles. It would kind of be like leaving Charleston and walking on foot to Columbia. One time they did this. And in Matthew chapter 15, we read this. They did it one time to come ask Jesus a question. Here's the question they asked Jesus. Miles of walking, they asked Jesus this question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. I mean, I'm thinking, come on, it's like a five-year-old tattling, you know. Why would you walk that far to ask Jesus a question about his disciples not washing their hands? And Jesus, I just love Jesus' response. He says this to them. And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? That's Jesus' answer. He answers them with a question like he always did. If I had been in the crowd that day, I went, yeah! Get him, Jesus! Poke him in the eye! You know? It's like, why are you guys so silly about stuff that doesn't matter? And they, these were the religious leaders of the day. Do you understand why God's people were worn out? Why they were exhausted? Why they were so desperate for something else? And they discovered that Jesus is better than religion. A personal relationship with Jesus is better than religion. You know, one of the things we've talked about throughout this series, All In, is that Jesus is all in for all people in all places at all times. No matter what you've done or who you did it with or how long you did it. We've seen that Jesus was with tax collectors and prostitutes. He was with, you know, soldiers of fortune. Jesus, Jesus hung out. He was known as a friend of sinners. We've talked about that. That's who, who Jesus was. And so when Jesus shows up that day, people, people move towards him. You know, in, in fact, Jesus' words were always so life-giving, except to who? The religious leaders of the day. I'm going to move through these pretty quickly. John's gospel records some of these words. No, excuse me. Matthew's gospel records these words that are aimed at some of the religious leaders. Matthew chapter 23 verse 13. Jesus said, but woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. You're just shutting the kingdom, keeping people out. Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Harsh words. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land. You know, you'll go everywhere to make a proselyte of yourselves. But when they become a proselyte, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. And that list just goes on, man. I, I, I cut it short. Because Jesus says that kind of religion kills people. That is not from God. Let me show you what life is all about. And so the multitudes clamored for this. They were hungry and thirsty. Mark writes in his gospel in chapter 12 that the common people heard Jesus gladly. Man, they loved hearing Jesus. He was just this breath of fresh air. And so at Passover, this great crowd shows up. They converge on Jerusalem because it was such a big deal. One of the commentators I read, William Barclay, gives some numeric descriptions of what one particular, not this Passover, one particular Passover, so that you kind of get the enormity of it. Um, they said, he said about this one particular Passover, a census had been done, and the number that was given of the numbers of lambs that were killed at that Passover that year were 256,000. 
256,000. Now for a lamb to have been offered as a sacrifice in that time, 10 people had to participate. So if you multiplied it out, there were almost 2.7 million people in, in Jerusalem at this particular Passover. Not, not the one we're talking about that Jesus wrote in on, but the one that Barclay's talking about. It was a tremendous crowd. I want you to just get the enormity of the potential crowd that was coming out to meet Jesus. Now, I want to take all the gospel narratives and kind of put them together for a moment in story form. When Jesus gets up that morning, that first day of the week, what we know as Palm Sunday, he is most likely living, staying in Lazarus' house. This is the Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead a week or maybe a couple weeks before. Okay? He's staying with Lazarus. Jesus gets up and Jesus starts making his way from Lazarus' house up to... The, the hill up the hill called the Mount of Olives. It's not, they call it Mount, it's not like a giant mountain, it's a hill. Some of us have had the privilege of being there. And Jesus starts making his way up. And while he's walking up, people from Bethany and Bethphage start following him. Because they were witnesses to him raising Lazarus from the dead. And they're, they're going to follow him now. They're going to see what he's going to do next. And so Jesus sends one of his, two of his disciples to go to a nearby village. We don't know. We can speculate. But we don't know which village it was. But he goes into a nearby village. He tells him to go there. Get a donkey. Bring it to him. And he rides this donkey up the Mount of Olives, on the backside of the Mount of Olives. It, and, and this crowd is now following him. And I believe, personally, that this is the crowd that's saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Bible tells us that somehow word got into the city that Jesus was coming. So now you've got a crowd coming this way, and you get another crowd heading this way to the Mount of Olives. And eventually, they're going to meet. Now, Psalms 118, uh, verse 26, is the one that tells us that this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And quite frankly, that was a messianic victory chant. That's what that was. It was kind of like the Messiah has come. Now, the word Hosanna that's used here is not a part of Psalm 118. Hosanna, most of the time when we think of Hosanna, we think of what? I think I normally think of praise. You know, praise God. Hosanna was not praise. Hosanna was a prayer. Hosanna literally means bring salvation now. It was the heart cry of the nation of Israel. Lord, would you bring salvation now? Would, would the Savior come? We, we need this, God. And that's why so many that day just broke out in that. They were longing for this. They were crying out for it. I believe that just like in that day, there are many in our world that are begging for that. Longing for the salvation of God to come to them. Begging that something would change in their life. People of every race and tribe and nation. Longing for, for Christ to, to make a difference in their lives. And they may not even know his name yet. And yet he, I believe, is the most compelling human being that ever, he still amazes me. I've been following Jesus now since 1977. And shortly after I began walking with the Lord, a man by the name of Jim Crooks, who was a member of this church years ago, began discipling me. And he taught me how to, how to read the Bible and do it in such a way that I can maybe gain some understanding. 
And since that time, I've, had, I've been privileged to read through God's Word on multiple occasions. And I, I've, I'm really trying to be honest here. I'm not, I've tried not to exaggerate, but I believe in my heart of hearts that I have read or listened through the Gospels hundreds of times. I love listening to the Gospels narratives. And there are times, even this past week, when I was soaping through the scriptures and I was in one of the gospels and I just got stopped dead in my tracks at how incredibly awesome Jesus is. It just blows me away some days, even after all these years. He's still alive in my heart. And God in his word just brings him out. I believe, as well as many others, that Jesus is the most significant person who ever lived in human history. I love reading different people's quotes about Jesus, but one of my favorite is a Russian novelist, Dostoevsky, and he said this, he said, I believe there is no one deeper, lovelier, and more sympathetic and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there never could be anyone else like him. I love that description. That description is actually what drove the Pharisees to hate Jesus and the crowds to love him. That he was lovely and deep and sympathetic and perfect. The Pharisees hated him because of that. They, you know, at the end of the chapter, or the end of what we read, that text, it says, look, the whole world's going after him. They, they believed that because they saw in the hearts of that crowd gathered that day, Jesus meeting a need they couldn't meet. Meeting a need that their religion could not meet. Because Jesus is better than any religion. Second thing that I walk away from John's account of Palm Sunday is this. And I pray it will strengthen your confidence in the gospel and in God's word. And it's this. God's word is better than man's opinion. God's word is better and more sufficient than man's opinion. Now, there are a lot of people around Jesus on that day. And there were lots of opinions in that crowd of Passover as to who he really was. It, you, we don't even have to use the other gospel writers. We can just look at John's gospel because John tells us about opinions different people had of Jesus. In John chapter 7 verse 40, it says this, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, words of Jesus, they said, He's certainly a prophet. That was an opinion that somebody had. In John chapter 9 verse 16, some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God. In John chapter 9 verse 24, they said, we know this man is a sinner. It's another opinion about Jesus. In John 17, a blind man whose eyes Jesus had opened, he said, no, he's a prophet. In John chapter 10, we read some other opinions that say he has a demon and is insane. Why would we listen to him? In John 7, 41, others said he's not the Messiah because the Christ will not come out of Galilee. There are all these different opinions of Jesus. In fact, in John's gospel, there are three accounts of a crowd being gathered, being divided in their opinion over Jesus. Three different accounts of that taking place. So here's, here's the question. Here's kind of the point here. Were any of those descriptions that I just read you accurate? Now, there's one that came close, maybe the prophet thing. But Jesus was so much more than a prophet. See, all of those folks had opinions of who Jesus was. But none of those really mattered. What they, what they thought. 
What really matters is what Jesus says and what God's Word says about Jesus. Now, here's the cool thing. Twice in the text that I read to you earlier um, from John chapter 12, twice there is a reference back to the Old Testament. We've already looked at Psalm 118. And we've seen that, you know, the passage about blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But if you look again at verses 14 and 15, in our text we see this. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it was written. And then there's this quote that John gives us that's pulled out of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It happened about 500 years before. And interestingly enough, it points to this day. See, historians believe that this, this month of Nisan is when this was going to be fulfilled. Now, why, why was Jesus riding on a donkey, do you think? Why do you, why do you think a donkey? Did Jesus get tired walking up the hill that day? Did, did Jesus just think, hey, it'd be really cool to start a, the Jerusalem basketball donkey league or something like that? I mean, wh why, why, why this? Because it fulfilled scripture. It fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. In, in Zechariah 9, 9, look at this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. He's having salvation. They were screaming, Hosanna, bring salvation. He has salvation. He is humble. He's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. John lifts this out to describe the scene that he was seeing that day. Now, why do you think God chose five to six hundred years earlier that Jesus would ride, the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? In, in that culture, when a king would ride on a donkey in a public parade, it was always to declare peace. It was always to say, we are living in a time of great peace. If you ever saw a king in a processional on a donkey, it meant there was great peace. When else did a king ride a beast? In times of war. What kind of animal did he ride then? He would ride a horse, uh, like what would be called a war horse. Now here's something interesting. If you fast forward, you know, John's writing this gospel, but now John is given a revelation from God later on in his life when he's exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And here's what John receives from God. It's in Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes what? War. When Jesus comes... The next time, he's not going to be on a donkey, folks. The Bible tells us he's going to be on a war horse. It will be two different kinds of comings. It will fulfill two completely different purposes. And the outcomes will be very different. When Jesus returns, he is declaring ultimate war on all evil and all of the brokenness of this world. Now, there's something else going on in this event in, on the day of Palm Sunday that points to the, uh, the reliability of God's word. 
If you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, it's really about this same event. Luke just gives us some different kind of descriptions. And in verse 41, Jesus is about to crest to the top of Mount of Olives. And Luke writes this. He's just coming up to the top. And the Bible tells us that he stops and he weeps over the city. Verse 42 tells us that Jesus just cries out, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. Jesus is saying, I wish you people knew what would bring peace. But it's hidden from your eyes. And then, in verses 43 and 44, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus predicts the coming destruction of Jerusalem. That there's coming this day when not even one stone would be left on the other. And then he says this. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't understand what was going on when I showed up, Jesus said. And so this capital city is going to be destroyed ultimately. You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus seems to be holding the crowd accountable for that knowledge. Jesus seems to be saying, you were visited, you were sent a messenger, but because you did not notice, because you did not open your eyes, this is what's pending for you. And I believe all of this is referencing something that happened years earlier. Now, I need to, I need to say two things. One, this is going to take me a minute to unpack Two, it's going to go kind of deep, so you got to ride with me. Okay, stick with me real close for, for just a minute. But it will point to the power and accuracy, I believe, uh, of God's Word. This Palm Sunday, this event, I believe that what Luke's talking about in Luke 19 also points back to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, we see uh, a moment when an angel appears to Daniel. And he brings a message from God to the prophet Daniel who was being held. Literally he had been taken captive into Babylon. Taken out of his nation of Israel. Hauled off to Babylon where, where he would spend out the rest of his days. And he would serve these foreign kings. But on, he was in prayer at a time. And in his prayer time the angel Gabriel comes to him. And I want you to look with me if you will at Daniel chapter 9 verses 25 and 26. Says this. Now listen. This is the angel speaking. Now listen. And I'm reading from the Living Bible. If you're reading from ESV or New American Standard it's going to sound way different but it really does because it because it was math I needed for it to be simpler okay because it's just trust me on this it really does work out I'm reading from the living bible the angel says now listen it will be 49 years plus 434 years somebody do the math 49 plus 434 is what 483 okay 483 so this is basically what it's saying. Listen, it will be 483 years from the time that a command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. 483 years from the time the command is given until the anointed one comes. And after this period of time, the anointed one, after he comes, he will be killed. So that's what we learn from Daniel chapter 9. And here, here's the thing. The Babylonians who had captured Jerusalem earlier before, they had destroyed it. And Daniel is hearing this angel tell him that there's going to be a command given one day to go rebuild the city. And historians tell us exactly when that command was given. 
And it was given by king, he was a Medo-Persian king by this time, Artaxerxes Longiminus. Artaxerxes Longiminus was the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire at this time. And he gave a command in 445 BC to restore the building of Jerusalem. Now, if you take 445 and add 483, guess where you come in history? You come to this year that our Lord shows up on Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what that does to you. Now, just so that you understand really how crazy in detail this stuff can go, there's this gentleman by the name of Sir Robert Anderson. He was actually knighted by the Queen of England. He had served in Scotland Yard uh, well uh, in his tenure there. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince. You can order this on Amazon. Um, it was written in the 1800s. But in this document, he details using comparing the Babylonian calendar and the Hebrew calendar. He brings this down to the exact day. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but he brings this down to the exact day. A prophecy that was made 483 years earlier is fulfilled to the exact date according to uh, Brother Anderson here. It's just, just crazy stuff. Now, why, why, do I, why do I want to push you into all of that? Here's why. Because I want you to understand something about your God. How precise is he? Pretty precise. Do you think God keeps his appointments? If he shows up 483 years later on time, I would say he keeps his appointments. You know, is he trustworthy? Can, can he be trusted to fulfill? And see, that's the bottom line issue. Can you trust God to fulfill his word? To do what he says. Now, the Bible tells us the disciples, they see all this happening, they ain't got a clue. Verse 16, what we read earlier. They see all of this going on, and they are completely clueless until after Jesus is glorified. Then the, the puzzle pieces start fitting together. Once Jesus is raised from the dead and goes back to the Father, they start understanding when the Holy Spirit comes. They get it. They see it. Now, what that tells me is this. The more time that I spend walking with Jesus listening to the Spirit, spending time in His Word, the more sense the gospel is going to make to me. The more it will grow in my heart and mind because the gospel, the Word of God is active. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us this, that the Word of God is active and alive and it's powerful. It's, that's why, why you can read it one day and then read it you know, a week later and get something totally different because God is at work in it. And here's what I hope you walk away with understanding. God's word is greater than any human being's opinion. Any human being's experience. And I hope what that does for you is that will empower you and encourage all of our hearts as we go into Holy Week to trust the gospel. To see the power of the gospel. To want to share the reality of the gospel. And so there's a question that's just attached here for, for all of us this day I think. Do you find him trustworthy? Are you finding in your personal relationship with God that he's trustworthy? In whatever it is you deal with, whatever difficulty you're facing, are you finding God, are you trusting him? Because I'm telling you, he can handle it. He can handle whatever you're facing because he sees it all in advance. Here's the third and final thing that I learned from this life event from Jesus is that following is better than observing. 
Following is always better than observing. And this really struck me deeply this week. See, there are four groups of people present at this event called Palm Sunday. Four different groups, I believe. The first group is the disciples. We've already talked about them. And verse 16 tells us about them. They were followers of Jesus. They believed Jesus. They trusted his word as the truth. And they had devoted their lives to follow him. They were learners. They didn't have it all figured out as we've already seen. But they were following him. They were in full devotion to Jesus. They had been following him for three, three and a half years now. Fully devoting their lives to him. Learning from him. And then obeying him. When he told them something, and it was paying off in their lives, they were devoted. There was a second group there that day. These were the people who had been eyewitnesses to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They had witnessed it. They had seen this dead man come out of a grave who had been dead multiple days. They, they were present for that. And they began to tell others. They told other people about it. They were standing there with Mary and Martha when, when Lazarus came out of a tomb. They were there that day. And so they started telling other people about it. Verse 17 tells us this. It says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So they were telling people, we saw this guy raise somebody from the dead. This is incredible. They told other people about it. But what it doesn't tell us in John's gospel account is that they in turn became devoted followers of Jesus. We don't know that. Hopefully some did later. There was a third group there that day. This is found in verse 18. And these are the people who listened to the eyewitness group. They had heard the stories when these people went into Jerusalem during this Passover celebration that was kicking up. They were telling people in Jerusalem. And so now people in Jerusalem were talking about what these other people had witnessed that day. Verse 18 tells us the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard what he had done through this sign. They went out. So you got this crowd coming from Bethany with Jesus. You got this crowd coming out to Jerusalem. This third group of people. And they're all in awe over Jesus in this moment. But there was also a fourth group that the scripture tells us about in verse 19. It's the Pharisees. They were there that day. And we've already talked about them. They, the Bible tells us in verse 19 that the Pharisees are talking to one another. Most likely they're in the city. And they're looking out at the crowd gathering on the hill coming down the Kidron Valley up into Jerusalem. And they're probably freaking out. And we know they're freaking out because of what they said. They said, you see, you're gaining nothing. I think they're looking at one another and saying, we've, we've done nothing. We've done nothing to stop this. And now look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after him. Now let me ask you a question. Had the whole world really gone after Jesus yet? No. Not even everybody in that crowd really went after Jesus. We know that because just a few days later, what are they hollering? Crucify him. We know they didn't go after Jesus. They weren't all in for Jesus. Earlier in John chapter 11, verse 48, the, the, they were conspiring, the Pharisees were. And they said, if we don't do something, if we leave this crowd alone, they will surely follow him and believe him. And so they plotted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. They want to wipe out all evidence. And now they're at this point, they're saying, everybody's following him. They're, they're kind of despairing. Folks, that day, there really was only one group truly following Jesus. And that were those who had devoted their lives to him. 
who were literally following him everywhere he went, who were hanging on every single word he spoke, who were trusting him with their entire lives. And I think part of what God wants you and I to get today is this. There are a lot of people that gather in spaces like this on a Sunday. Take notes, highlight stuff, maybe stand up and sing when the songs are sung. You know, maybe raise a hand. Doing the Christian thing, but never being obedient. Never, never taking what they hear from God and putting it in their lives. And that's the most important, that's the only thing that matters. That's why every week, if you'll notice on the back of our, our notes is those two questions. What's God saying to you today? And what are you going to do about it? Because if all you do is observe and don't follow, if all you do is observe and don't apply, if all you do is observe and don't act, then you're one day going to be like that crowd that turned on Jesus. You will belong to that crowd that went from, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucifying. You, you, you will make that kind of switch. And if you're here today, my heart tells me that you don't ever want to make that switch. And so you got to move from just observing to being a devoted follower, hanging on to the every word of Jesus. I want to close with this thought. That day, on that very first Palm Sunday, there was one particular character in the story who was the most devoted of all to Jesus that day. Do you know who it was? It was the donkey. It was the donkey. The Bible tells us that this particular donkey had never had a burden on it, had never been ridden. We normally think of donkeys as what kind of animals? Kind and gentle? Stubborn and mean. That's what normally comes to mind when we think of a donkey. This particular donkey never been ridden. And, and trainers will tell you, if you put something or you, as a person, you try to sit on the back of a donkey for the first time, you are in for the ride of your life. But this donkey did what? He submitted to the Lord. He gave everything that he was to carry the burden of Jesus. To carry the deliverer of the world that day. This donkey on this incredible, wonderful day, the 10th of Nisan. The day when lambs were going to be brought into the hearts and families of God's people to be sacrificed. On that day. This donkey gave everything he had. He would carry the gospel that day to the nations. Maybe, just maybe, we've all got certain something to learn from that donkey today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come in this moment. We come, dear God, just thanking you for your holy word. Thanking you, God, that you are reliable, that you are precise, that you can be trusted. God, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you that in the life of Jesus, not only 
were these two prophecies fulfilled, but hundreds of others. Hundreds of others. So that we could trust the power and the truth of the gospel. God, thank you for reminding us today again that Jesus is so much more attractive and winsome and lovable and beautiful than religion. Anything that we can make up. Thank you for reminding us of that. God, thank you for reminding us of the reliability of your word. And God, thank you for reminding us that you call us to obedience. You call us to follow and not just underline and highlight, but to follow you in a spirit of obedience. So Lord, we come in this moment saying we want to live in Christ alone, saying to you, dear God, What do you have us do today so that we can go do it? Would you show us, Lord, now as we meditate, as we worship, as we give? Maybe maybe it's something about our time or our talents or our treasure that you're calling for from us to sacrifice. God, we want to be all in just like you're all in. We want our lives to revolve totally around Christ alone. Receive our giving, receive our worship, and receive our decisions to follow you with a greater heart of boldness now. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9.30 or 11 o'clock services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.